Hello, friends. This is Eddie, host of The New Activist, welcoming you to this re-release of season one. <laughs> I've gotten the feedback that I was a lot more serious and somber sounding in season one, and I agree. This episode especially. Man, was I trying to be serious. <laughs> oh, well. I guess we're all just finding our own voice, right? Anyway, this is a show, great show, with uh, Mark Laberton. It aired originally October 26th of 2016, and I am excited for you to hear it as we release it now. The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. IJM is working very hard to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are free. There are a lot of ways that you can help IJM in this mission, but uh, for you right now, the easiest way and really one of the most important ways that you could help would be to go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM, IJM, and fill out the form that you see there, which will send a letter to your elected officials asking them to help and end slavery. That's all it is, but it's really, really helpful. New Activist is IJM. Enjoy this conversation between Nikki Toyamasito and Mark Laverton. This is the new activist. Well, this is The New Activist, episode 007, 007. <laughs> I am so glad that you are here. My name is Eddie Koffeltz. I am one of your hosts, and what a, just a deep joy it is to be a part of these conversations with you. The feedback to the show has just been great, and I feel and am quite certain that this week will be no different Episode 007 with Dr. Mark Laberton, though I think you would ask to be called just Mark. But Dr. Laberton has served as Fuller Seminary's president since 2013. He was and is the fifth president in Fuller's history. His experience includes 30 years of pastoral ministry, 16 of which were in First Pres Church of Berkeley, California, a well-respected church. And Mark is a sought-after speaker and writer. He has authored a bunch of books, his most recent of which is titled The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor, Seeing Others Through the Eyes of Jesus. That seems right. And what may be especially interesting to you, oh podcast listener, is Mark is the host of a brand new incredible podcast called Conversing. I'll put a link to that in our episode page, but you should definitely listen to it. Joining me to chat a bit about this is Nikki Toyamasito. Nikki, how are you? I'm fine. Hello, friend. Oh, How buddy. are you? I'm so great. It's so nice of you to ask. It's so nice to hear your voice. Um, and today's interview with Mark is amazing. It's great. Yeah. And you I have to say it's great. Yes. Yeah. So this was another one of those interviews, like our early Eugene Cho interview, where I got to be just the producer. And I got to sit and watch you and Mark almost knee to knee, really like doing a deep conversation. How was that time for you? Oh, I mean, it was amazing. I think the thing that I love about Mark is he has this very lofty role, right? He's the president of a seminary. And, <laughs> um, and and from there, you kind of think more like the 
symbolic or ceremonial kind of a role, and they have to be kind of diplomatic. But the thing that I love about him is he has a really incisive perspective. Like, he has to think about the future of the church. Like, that's sort of his job because they're training up pastors. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like he has his eye on the horizon. He has his eye, like, past the horizon because he's thinking about what do leaders need for what the challenges that the church is going to face. So I feel like he's in this particular perch that only like a handful of folks in the country actually kind of have to hang out in. Mm. And he is like, he's like a prophetic presence in that place. So I just love hearing his take on what's going on in the world and in the U.S. It's just fascinating. With Mark's role, it's a really important job. And I know all jobs are important, but Fuller right. is like, you know. It's a global, that, it's a global school. It, it is. And I yeah. think every single person sort of has their waiting to go to Fuller to get their demon online in their pocket. Like this is the place really to be right now. And he's leading that. And he's not just leading a school, like right, just, right. he's leading a whole, I mean, is, is movement a fair word to say, or just a. a well, whole, I think it might be a stretch, but yeah, I do okay. think, uh, education is an institution of society. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. So how do you feel like he is doing being postured within the leadership role that he is in as the head of Fuller? Well, I feel like he's being surprisingly innovative, right? So he's got this ancient, ancient institution that has been a part of society for a long time, right? Um, But he has to think about both, he's like at the crosswinds of, you know, higher education is totally changing, right? People are like not going to traditional universities anymore. So he has to think about how do people learn and how that's changing. And then he has to think about the crosswinds that are happening for the church. So he's like right here in the middle of like, a windstorm that's going on. And I feel like he's um, been very innovative in how it is that he's leading the institution. What are new ways to get education into the hands of people who don't have the luxury to be like full-time students or um, kind of challenging access to education, that kind of a thing. So I think that there's a way that he has taken this giant behemoth of an institution and has still managed to do things that make it a prophetic presence. It's not the most glamorous thing you've ever seen, but I think over time, it's probably going to be a very impactful thing. Mm. Well, I got to say, just as a, an observer, I think, and this is going to just embarrass you, but whatever, you, I think you're the smartest person I've ever met, <laughs> certainly, and I know if you have to laugh that off, but you are smart, and Mark might be like 1A, or you guys, so watching you all sitting there and talk. You know, I, I just, defer to the PhD. I, oh, man. The <laughs> we'll two, get to the seminary president. The two of you could, like, <laughs> bend metal with your minds, so um, it was cool to watch, and it's cool to listen. Uh, Nikki, good to hear your voice. Great. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, thanks, bud. Here is Nikki Toyamasito in conversation with Mark Laverton. Um, What are some of the opportunities and challenges that you see in Christian higher ed? And what do you think that the church can learn from some of the things that you all are dealing with in Christian higher ed? Great question. And it is the principal question of every single day. Uh, I think we're facing a period of unprecedented change in four different categories all at the same time. Higher education, theological higher education, the church, and culture, and the relationship of the church to culture. So with all four of those things changing, it's just a way in a shorthand of acknowledging that we're in a completely different moment than a kind of Christendom moment where seminaries prepare 
candidates sent by churches or denominations for theological education, seminaries do whatever seminaries do, and then they send them back to those churches or denominations. That model is at the very best tenuously continuing. Mm. And it means that the whole landscape of where students come from, what their formation has been, what theological education can offer, what higher education needs to consider as a change platform interrupted by technology, completely recasts the context of what we're doing and the form in which it has to be done. So if you think about theological education or higher education being principally defined as a library and a faculty, hmm. those things in classical terms were only accessible through an admissions process, through paying tuition and through spending a certain amount of formulaic time getting the degree. So the question is, in a time when the credentialing vision of ministry is changing because churches are changing, because the nature of ministry is changing because culture is changing, because higher education is changing because of the changes that are going on technologically, it means that everything is shifting simultaneously. Wow. And leadership at a moment like this is really about facing the reality of where we really are, trying to understand how you hold on to your identity that's really your principal gift that you hope to be able to continue to give while flexing as amiably, nimbly, wisely as you can about how you go about this. So we've often said we're an institution rooted in orthodoxy with branches in innovation. Hmm. And I think that's one way of casting what we're trying to do. How do we make sure that our commitment to Christian orthodoxy theologically and biblically is still the centerpiece of our uh, Christian identity and at the same time become even more an innovation center for how theological education and formation is done and then how it's done for a widely changing church in an even more dramatically changing world. Wow. As you survey or as you look out on the North American church and on the global church, what are some of the things that give you hope and give you a lot of excitement? I think one of the things that's giving me a great deal of hope has been the burgeoning growth in the last, I would say, 15 years especially, of new church planting movements that are going on all over the U.S. And a lot of those are happening in urban centers, and some of them are happening in, in other places around the U.S. as well. Certainly, I don't think it would be a challengeable statement to say that more church planting has happened in the last decade than had probably happened in the previous 50 years or really? more, I would think. Wow. It's it's really dramatic. Now, there's also a great deal of church planting failures that occur. I'm not saying that critically. I'm just saying I think it's they take the risk, they form the church, it may or may not become a sustainable entity, and then it may or may not be right that they continue to plant another church in the same vicinity, but they are learning how to do this. Uh, so I think in any case, that church planning movement is very big. I think a second thing that I find very hopeful is the growth of immigrant churches. This is probably one of the most important things, I think, long-term. I hope that the church planting movement will have a great pervasive influence. I think the immigrant church influence will undoubtedly have a lasting impact. So many people, people have come from different places around the world out of really vibrant, healthy churches who come to the U.S., looking for an opportunity to continue to grow and deepen and extend the manifestations of their faith. And they don't find that American churches necessarily do that or they're not yet mm -hmm. able socially, linguistically or otherwise to enter into those settings. So they naturally plant immigrant churches. And mm -hmm. in those immigrant churches, there is unbelievably vigorous ministry going on. And in some cases, some of the most thriving 
churches in any given context might be an immigrant church that was planted within the last decade. Wow. There's a lot of that going on in different parts of the U.S., again, especially in urban centers, but by no means only in urban centers. So I think those are two things that are quite uh, quite positive. I think the third thing is that people are uh, in a season of sorting the meaning of church. Hmm. And I think yeah. that's a legitimate and healthy crisis. So in the conversations that have uh, gone on, of course, with people that are the so-called nuns or the, the duns or uh, other such groups that are sometimes named, I think what it's naming is that the crisis is what is the church of the 21st century? Hmm. And will there be a church that actually matters? Mm -hmm. I don't think people are disaffected as much with the Christian faith per se, as mm -hmm. much as they are with institutional expressions of the Christian faith, which they find disconnected, unintegrated, preoccupied with issues, patterns, practices that seem to just have no social reality or a disembodied connection to the real world that they actually live in. Hmm. I think that throws down the gauntlet, frankly, for a fresh opportunity to think about the meaning of church. And I hope that the task in a certain way of the next 10 to 20 years is really what will happen in America in a post-Christendom era for the church that is to find itself and depended so hmm. much on a Christendom mindset to be able to actually rethink its identity. This is not a new question, the least to the church around hmm. the world. This is the norm for the church around the world. But the church in North America for at least a couple of hundred years and certainly in its current expression for the last 50 to 75 years has really had a very normative determination of what mm -hmm. quote church in America looks like. I think all of that's unraveling. I personally mm -hmm. think a great deal of that is really healthy. And I find that, which other people find really quite disturbing, I find actually a lot of it quite hopeful. One of the things uh, that's very interesting to me is the way that you can be very intentional about bringing very different kinds of groups together to be in relationship with each other, or to be in community with each other, whether for a long time or for a short period of time. Do you have any thoughts or insights about how do you do that with intentionality but how do you balance that with kind of a forced fun or an artifice that, that might actually hinder real and authentic relationship? Yeah, that's a very important question. And it's one that I do try to think and act on a lot. Uh, I wish I did even more than I do. So uh, I think it, the origin of that for me is, is really Ephesians 2. And the sense that in Paul's laying out the consequences of the gospel, it starts with the fact that we're dead then it moves to the fact that we're given life. And then it moves immediately to the fact that the manifestation of life is an unexpected community of people made up of unlike people who wouldn't otherwise find each other, let alone call each other to the same common center and hope and life in Christ, hmm. which I think is Paul's argument in those first two chapters of Ephesians, mm -hmm. which then eventually comes to chapter four, where mm -hmm. we hear, uh, another one of Paul's expositions about the nature of the church and the manifestations of different gifts. But long before you have any of that, he's describing the character of the church as people once dead, now alive, and in new, unexpected, unlikely communion because of the character of this gospel. That means that issues that we sometimes sociologically call diversity are not an appendage or a little project. They're actually a part of the very essence of what it means to be the people of God. Yeah. So what strikes me about that is that if that's really true, then then 
we have to work deeply and continuously mm-hmm. at manifesting that, especially given that we, in almost every context, and certainly in the North American context, we know deeply that the church is precisely divided divided along racial ethnic lines, yeah. where so much of the church's identity is about not being whatever the other brand, color, or label might be, which might be sociologically explainable, but theologically and ecclesially, it's a crisis because it says that we're giving up one of the most tangible, specific, and even immediate implications of what this unlikely new communion that the gospel alone can create is meant to actually demonstrate. Mm. And in the absence of that, Mm -hmm. it feels to me that Paul would say, then how can the church be the church in a given locale if it's not an expression of the unlikeliness that in Christ we have found each other. Wow. That is a very provocative thing to me. And I yeah. I think that was an early commitment that came to me really as I was coming to faith when I was in college. I remember thinking a lot about that and a lot about the fact that, that to be a follower of Jesus meant a new sociology. And the sociology w- was not mine and it wasn't my class or caste or race. It was really uh, the sociology of the kingdom, which is what Paul calls a new humanity. Wow. And that was the project for which the gospel was sent. Mm -hmm. So to not do it and to claim you have the gospel and to not let it be manifest in some way that is as salty and challenging as that Mm -hmm. would be that it would call in question whether you really then have the gospel or whether you have something else. Wow, Mark. That's very provocative, right? And it's, yes. And it's it's arresting to me, and it's it's a problem I want to gladly and happily share with everyone else because I feel like this is not a Mark Laverton prejudice. This is a this is I think an inherent theological and social evidence of the gospel. So I know that increasingly there's talk about so-called quote multicultural churches, and they're still far too a few in number. I'm, I, I'm acceptable. I find that language acceptable and I get what's being named and that's not inappropriate, I suppose. But what strikes me is this language that Paul uses about a new humanity church and the new Mm -hmm. humanity church isn't just about having representation in a Mm -hmm. given space, but about being called into a new family. That's a very different level of identification, Uh identity, life, communion. Uh So because I take that as, as a kind of fundamental premise, I've tried, sometimes this happens successfully, sometimes less so, I've tried consistently to bring unlike people and things together because I actually think that's of the essence of what the gospel uh, does. And I think it's a manifestation that is sadly lacking. Wow. I'm going to ask you a question that you can tell me if you want to cut it from the podcast. We totally can. Are you saying then that if a church is monocultural or sort of uh, uh, very homogeneous in its nature, that its ability to carry the gospel is in question? I think uh, its ability to carry the gospel is impaired. Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't say that it is uh, not possible because God 
can use an ass. So God can use whatever God wants to use to do whatever God wants to do. So I'm the last person that's going to suggest that if it's not this, then it can't be used by God. Uh, the only reason I can possibly be in ministry is because I know that I am the ass that God is choosing to use. So, so I'm very aware that I'm not going to set a boundary. But if you were to say, what is God's intention? I'd say, well, it seems as though God's intention is to create manifestations of the new humanity. And if that manifestation of that new humanity, when it can include people of diversity, uh, are are not actually together in that yes. reality, uh-huh. then it would seem to me it will be impaired. So uh, there will be an inability to demonstrate one of the aspects of the gospel that's going to call us beyond ourselves. See, this is the great convergence in American Christianity, especially around uh, the way that American Christianity, I think, has easily become uh, seduced by consumerism. Andy Stanley says that one of the things that he assumes about every person that ever comes to his church is that they might first and foremost be a consumer. If we take that as a social statement that we are groomed to be consumers by a materialistic culture and a consumer-oriented culture, and we realize that, of course, that is the air that we breathe as we then make a decision about which church we're going to go to, and we want to consume that church because it manifests Mm -hmm. itself in ways that we want, Mm -hmm. then really it becomes quite invisible, but Mm -hmm. I would say at least arguably fairly unquestioned, that we bring a great deal of ourselves to that choice, not Mm. a great deal of God's vision to that choice, right? So Mm. we choose this or that church because, gosh, it just really feels like it fits us. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's understandable. That's not inappropriate. I'm not suggesting that we should go for something that doesn't fit us. But part of what's going to fit or not fit has to do with how we envision something. And if the vision is it just meets my needs and it's like me and it makes me feel as though I'm in my safe space, I'm not sure that that's going to be the kind of place that uh, that's going to enable Christian ministry as strongly. Now, let me say this. Fuller Seminary has uh, had in its history a very important and I would say controversial contribution around discussions about the role of homogeneous movements of, of mm. God. Mm-hmm. And when that was first uh, observed by one of our faculty, the comment was made at the time in the study that was made about this was simply an, a sociological observation that said churches grow faster when they're homogeneous because mm-hmm. people are crossing less barriers yes. and therefore they can come more naturally into the gospel because they're not having to join a completely different right. ethne. Yeah. Uh, but while that may be a sociological fact, I think it's not a, a a healthy church strategy fact. It is a healthy church numerical growth fact, and that might help get people established in a a preliminary understanding of the gospel. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the kind of deep revisionist renewing work of the Spirit of God needs the grist of us being in settings where we are loving people that are not like us, that don't like us, and mm. that are uh, that may even be in some sense our enemies, mm-hmm. in order for us to actually be taken through a process of change that I think is only something that can be done in that way. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so as, as you're saying this, and I'm trying to think of, I mean, one of the big things that has come up that um, has been, I think, a difficult conversation for the church to have has been around issues of Black Lives Matters as well as support of local law enforcement. 
Do you have any advice for what that might look like for Christians to enter into this kind of conversation that you're saying with someone who might have a totally different point of view? Like what does sort of that transformative in relationship kind of dynamic, what what do you imagine that might look like in that kind of a situation? I just yesterday had a very interesting conversation with a pastor who brought together in a particular context in his church, a conversation between an FBI agent who has been very much on the side of law enforcement and on the and on the work that has frequently involved uh, cross-racial uh, challenges of many, many different kinds mm-hmm. with a professor who works in an area of, of race who was African-American. The first mm-hmm. person was, I believe, uh, a Caucasian man. Mm-hmm. They actually had quite a helpful conversation together in front of the congregation about mm-hmm. this. So it was sort of mm-hmm. bringing together, yeah. if you want to put it that way, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. with police mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. And their conversation was fine. What was not fine was the way that this interacted with the congregation that heard this conversation. And it was because each of these two people were almost perfect stereotypes of what various people found problematic about their position, right? So the person that was representing the law enforcement uh, felt as many people hearing that person felt as though he completely did not really empathize and understand and internalize the depth of Black Lives Matter issues. And Mm -hmm. though the professor who was talking to him did a marvelous job of making that bridge. Mm -hmm. Their lived experience told them that he didn't get it. And Mm -hmm. it felt to them that his words were to some degree demeaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, there were other people who felt as though they were on the law enforcement side, who felt as though the African-American professor did not get it and Mm -hmm. or what he was referring to felt to them as though it was trivializing the the nature of the law and mm-hmm. abandoning mm-hmm. the extraordinary difficulty of trying to carry out just mm-hmm. law-abiding activity in a context of such explosiveness when their lives are on the line every single yes. day. Right. I was a pastor of a church where one of the members of our congregation uh, was shot at uh, zero point range when he just had pulled a car over for uh, a light infraction Mm. and was blown away, Mm -hmm. leaving his wife and two very small children. Mm -hmm. And I remember at that memorial service, the literally hundreds and hundreds of police that came to that service and the the sense of the deep vulnerability on that side of the story. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the story, I've had many, many conversations with uh, African-American friends who have told me only their most recent stories mm-hmm. of feeling as though they were profiled and abused, and that, uh, that and this across an amazing array of of um, economic circumstances, social circumstances, trigger points. So I would say the issue in that congregation that I was just describing is not that they had a difficult conversation. It's now what will happen in light of having had a difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. So how do you persist in that yeah. in a way that is not trying to aim for some happy consensus where everyone goes home and goes, gosh, we've got that all sorted out now. Uh, But really a capacity, to grow a capacity in a a congregational setting for difficult, sustained conversations at close range Mm. where I can live in meaningful, deep communion with people who I agree with sometimes 
and often also disagree with mm. at a really deep level, yeah. believing that we are actually on the same journey toward Christ, who is the one redeemer, restorer, mediator, healer, peacemaker, who can actually work this out. Yeah. And I think that practice takes work and labor. Mm. So I think the question is often when those ha things happen, they just blow up. Yeah. People leave. They say, this isn't safe. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go near this again. Yeah. This is, I've touched the third rail, maybe the fourth and fifth and sixth rail. I'm not about <laughs> to ever do this again. I sure learned we're never having a conversation about Black mm -hmm. Lives Matters and police enforcement. Uh, whereas in fact, I'd say no, it's actually just the opposite. So you have to get there with preparation. Mm -hmm. Then you have to have what might be the confrontation. Mm -hmm. And then you have to figure out how are you going to pastor the reality of that confrontation wow. on an individual level and on a group level. That's very, very hard to do. Yeah. Very hard to do. Yeah. What do you think pastors can learn from activists and what can activists learn from pastors? Well, I think the thing that I love about activists and that I need around me, I can say, is that as a person with both a pastoral calling and a, and a lot of pastoral experience, I, I think have a greater instinct for maintaining communion than I sometimes need to have for doing change in the world. Mm. So what oh, the reason I need activists around me is mm -hmm. that I need people who are really provocateurs for change and action that does not come about by simply uh, making beautiful prayers or uh, having meaningful and rich discussions, but really needs to emerge <laughs> out of doing stuff in uh -huh. the world. If you're a Presbyterian as I am, sometimes you think if you've talked about it, you've actually done something. <laughs> so this is a, a problem that needs to be overcome for a number of reasons. But but in any case, I think it's, it's partly that gift, the gift that our behavior in the world actually matters. Mm -hmm. And there are systems and structures in particular mm -hmm. that without activist labor will not be changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, if justice is the right ordering of power, then injustice is the disordering and abuse of power. Mm. And when those things are systemic, it will take activism to actually change it because power always has a stake in itself, yes, right? right? So you don't get change by natural transformation. You get change because there's activism that's provoking mm -hmm. the change. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the church has a lot to learn from activists. What I hope the activists have to learn from the church can be not Passivity, I think that's not a good thing. Uh, the church is too often passive and, if, and almost creates a culture of passivity. Mm -hmm. Instead, what I would say is that what the church has to offer activists is a theological and spiritual grounding, vision, communion, and sacramentalism that locates the activism in the greater action of God who is the who is the source of shalom and Shabbat to mm -hmm. which activism is aiming, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so there is a place in an activist's life for reflection. There is a place for worship mm -hmm. that's making a claim about a supreme being whose life and justice and compassion and mercy is far greater than the activist can sometimes adequately remember. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the people who may hear all that and then just go home and say, but what's for lunch? They need the activists uh -huh. to say, but what are we now going to do uh -huh. if this is all true? Yeah. How do we demonstrate that in the uh, world? Fantastic. Great. Well, this week I decided to forego my little closing thoughts 
in favor of hearing a little bit more of Mark's conversation, and I think you will trust that I made the right choice there. However, I will say, if you want to chat more with Mark or learn more about Fuller, we have links to all of his social media as well as Fuller on our website. And also, The New Activist is on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Good conversations happening there. Appreciate all the folks, by the way, that have been chatting with us and furthering kind of the the collective knowledge of what we're hearing on a podcast together. Both Facebook and Twitter are New Activist Is, one word, New Activist I-S, and our website is newactivist.is. The music for today's show was composed by Ether. You can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Ether. Also, if you have a moment, you can subscribe to our show anywhere that you listen to podcasts. But if you have a spare second in your life, as if that exists, would you go to iTunes and toss us a review and a few stars? Again, thanks for all those that have been doing it. It really does actually, in all of the iTunes analytics things, helps new people find the show and subsequently new people joining this conversation. So thanks in advance. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Nikki Toyamasito, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.